I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Consent Convo on The Spin. We continue to talk with our brothers on consent. The Consent Convo is a public conversation campaign on consent. It is an emotional justice project in partnership with Ebony.com. Throughout October, I'm talking with black men about how they learned about consent, from whom, how that learning shaped their relationships to their body, to sex, to power, to men and women. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined by Mark Lamont Hill. He's an activist, scholar, an author, a television show host. Mark Lamont Hill is Distinguished Professor of African American Studies at Morehouse University. He's a CNN political commentator, a host of BET News and VH1 Live. And his latest New York Times bestselling book is Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, From Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. Welcome, welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Good to be here. Consent. We're asking men to speak out and stand up. You're one year older than the 36-year-old filmmaker Nate Parker. And Parker, of course, is the director, writer and star of Birth of a Nation. And he hit the headlines due to the 1999 sexual assault allegations when he was a student athlete at Penn State University. In an interview with Ebony.com's Brittany Danielle, she asked Parker specifically what he knew about consent at 19 years old. And he said, quote, To be honest... Not very much. It wasn't a conversation people were having. When I think about 1999, I think about being a 19-year-old kid. And I think about my attitude and behavior just toward women, objectifying them. I never thought about consent as a definition, especially as I do now, unquote. How did you learn about consent? What did your 19-year-old self know and learn? Who taught you? What did they teach you? And how did their teaching shape your relationship to yourself, to sex, to your body, to power, to men, to women? What were the notions of masculinity that surrounded you and how did they impact your understanding of consent? What did you and do you need to unlearn to create healthier, loving relationships? And looking back, what would you tell your 15 or 14 year old self? Let's talk consent. Mark Lamont Hill. Wow, that's, you know, it's, it's such a heavy heavy topic. And, and when Nate Parker uh, went through the controversy, there were moments where I said, wow, you know, he, he's figured this thing out. Uh, the Ebony interview, I was, I was optimistic. The initial interviews, I was very disappointed and sad and even angry. And then the subsequent interviews, I returned to that position of being angry and sad and disappointed. In many ways, I think my understanding of consent, being the same age as him, but were very similar early on. I didn't have the same experience as he did, but I had the same I think lack of understanding growing up. We didn't talk consent. We understood at the most basic level about rape, and we understood that sexual assault is wrong. Right? That was a very clear message that I got through popular culture, through media, through family, not directly, but indirectly. I mean, no one ever talked about rape in a way that was anything other than the most awful, vile thing you could do. But then when you get past the most basic and literal understanding of what uh, rape and sexual assault is, Things got fuzzy. Uh, there was a lack of clarity. The idea of alcohol being involved 
and uh, one's ability to consent was something that we never talked about. And and when you're surrounded by guys that talk about, you know, buying women drinks to get them looser or to get them easier or to get them home, and you're surrounded by pop culture, songs, music, and even now, you know, uh, all sorts of signals from billboards to to newspaper ads that sort of talk about a a kind of almost a pro-rape culture position vis-a-vis drugs and alcohol. It's very easy to, to not have a clear understanding, and I don't think I did. It wasn't something I actively thought about, but in retrospect, it wasn't until I got into graduate school. It wasn't until I started to talk uh, to uh, people who were doing sexual assault work, um, anti-sexual assault work, anti-sexual violence work, uh, talking to feminists, uh, doing reading, that I realized just how pervasive rape culture is in our society. And it's then that I began to think about questions of active consent, informed consent, issues around alcohol, issues that, quite frankly, I had I just hadn't thought about before. And so, again, while I've never been in a position like Nate Parker, I do understand the moment that he was born into. That's not excusing his behavior. He made a series of bad choices that night, but it, it does help me contextualize what happened. And I wish Nate, who I who I know, and I've said this to him privately as well and publicly, I, I wish he could have actively reflected on the moment in a way that conceded that a lot of bad choices were made that night, that he and his the other people in the room, uh, his friend, his male counterpart, didn't use their bodies properly in, in that night, no matter how you slice it. And a different set of choices needed to be made. He should have expressed sympathy, empathy, care, and regard for the survivor. And even if they had competing interpretations of what happened, there are ways to talk about that with, with, with humility and humanity. Uh, and I think those things were lost in the conversation. And I think that's something that we as a community of men have to think through differently. We have to have different conversations about consent. We have to have a more wide-ranging conversation about consent. And it's not just men or just not black, not just black men, it's everyone. But I think in our community, I'm particularly concerned with how we think and talk about it. And so, you know, that's interesting because when you think about the notion of acquiring a politics of consent, the understanding that yes means yes and no means no, that part of it becomes clear. But applying the politics to a practice, as you said, it's where things become just more blurred because the different things that shape how you move through the world impact how you think about consent and how you think about sex and how you think about bodies and power and women and men. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about, for you personally, the idea of how masculinity shaped your understanding of consent and therefore your relationship to sex and and power and what it meant to be a man. I think so much of masculinity is, which I regard much like whiteness, right, as an inherently unhealthy construct, right? I'm not looking for healthy masculinities. I'm not looking to get rid of toxic masculinities. I'm trying to destroy the very notion of masculinity. I'm saying in and of itself, it's born on very unhealthy, unsustainable ideas around dominance and power and violence and, and, and hatred, etc. similar to whiteness as a construct. Um, and so when I think about what masculinity has done in terms of determining or shaping my understanding of consent, I think, again, we grew up thinking that men are supposed to dominate. Men are supposed to dominate sexual relationships. Men are supposed to be pursuers and conquerors. And so you grew up thinking that your masculinity is tied up in not only your ability to, to be a, an aggressive pursuer, but, but a desire to. So even when you don't want to, you find yourself at times performing a particular type of manhood, a particular type of aggressive manhood. So you're a child growing up in my neighborhood. We play games like catch a girl freak a girl. In some neighborhoods, they called that game catch a girl, get a girl. In other neighborhoods, they called the game rape. And it was a neighborhood game where boys would 
run around and chase girls, and then you catch the girl, and then you hump the girl, or you dry hump the girl, or you, or you guys do whatever you want to do. But the whole premise of the game is that the boy chases the girl until he catches her. And this isn't a conversation about consent. The premise of the game is that you're chasing her. Now, what's interesting is, and, and I've read a piece by Akiba Solomon a while back where she talked about playing the game. We grew up in the same basic neighborhood. And she said there was this one time where, like, she decided she wanted somebody to, to touch her. So she stopped and came toward. She didn't run from the boy. She ran toward him. And, like, he froze up. He didn't know what to do. And, and that's sort of how masculinity works, right? It's like it's not enough to, to have the interaction. It has to be one of dominance. It has to be one of unchecked power. There's no space for female desire. There's no, there's no space for a woman to say, I want this. That almost is antithetical. To masculinity, excuse me. So what ends up happening is women are positioned only to be pursued, only to be dominated in our understanding. When you go up in, in high school or middle school and you go to uh, sex ed, so much of the conversation is about what girls should be doing, right? What do you do if a boy asks you to have sex? What do you do if a boy says no? What do you do if a boy says yes? What do you do? How do you protect yourself if a boy? You know, it's all about male desire. There's no space to say, what if a girl or a woman wants to ask the question? What if a girl or a woman wants to initiate a sexual encounter. There's no space for that. That almost seems like an interruption to our masculinity, a violation of our masculinity. So because our masculinity is sort of hovering around those ideas and those ideals, it makes it very, very, very difficult to have healthy sexual encounters, healthy sexual relationships early on. And then again, you're, you're surrounded by these pop culture narratives where you're told, you know, that no doesn't always mean no, because yes means yes and no means no is very clear cut. It's unambiguous. But then you're surrounded by pop culture images where, the, where a woman is saying no, but the man keeps pursuing and then she gives in. And the subtext of that is that when women say no, they don't really mean it. And so that kind of narrative is often reinforced in boys and men, and it leads to a very particular type of intimate partner sexual violence, a very particular type of intimate partner sexual assault that often gets normalized in society, largely because we're taught that women are property. So when you get into close, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, or partner relationships, and then husband-wife relationships, and I'm speaking within a heteronormative framework because this is sort of how we're taught, it becomes a situation where, you know, women are thought of as your property, which is why legally and structurally for so long, you know, rape was in, was considered impossible within marriage because it, it, she was yours. It was a property issue. All of this is about masculinity and, and a man's desire to dominate or a man's need to dominate. Those are the things that I'm unlearning. Those are the things that I, my teaching, through my activism, through my writing, I'm trying to help think through and unravel and destroy because it, they're, they're irredeemable ideologies. There's no good in them. They need to be destroyed. But that's the stuff that I think men are trying to unlearn at this moment in time. And I think someone like Nate Parker becomes a kind of signpost of a moment and his, his story becomes an opportunity to, to reflect back and say, okay, where were we 20 years ago? How we as a society understood this? Where are we now? And how can we use this as an example to move forward? One thing that for me becomes really important is um, the idea of a consent positive environment. So when you even look at the definition of the word consent, you see words like agree to, allow, accept, sanction, give permission for. So it's thinking about the idea of finding pleasure in permission, which is antithetical to the kinds of toxic masculinity that you break down and describe. But then it also makes me think, as you said, a lot of the teaching is about what girls should and shouldn't do when it comes to having sex with boys. But part of a consent positive environment is asking what informs your yes? 
when you said yes in the past, why have you said yes? Is the yes being informed by desire, by curiosity? Is the yes informed by politics of fear or shame or guilt or notions of what masculinity should look like? So for you, as you look back and you think back, what kinds of things have informed your yes and how has that had to change for you? You know, it's funny when you say what has informed my yes, it's an incredibly (laughs) awesome question because I've never thought about my yes before until, I guess, I've never thought about it as a choice. I think part of the problem with toxic, with this idea of masculinity is that boys don't think they have a choice. We're supposed to desire. We're supposed to desire. We're supposed to always want. We're supposed to always engage. If the opportunity is there, you got to take it or something wrong with you, right? So I don't know if I ever, as a young per- younger person, actively reflected on what informed my yes. Because so, there were times where, you know, I engaged in sexual encounters because I thought that's what boys were supposed to do. I thought that's what men were supposed to do. And so I didn't necessarily think about it as a choice for me. I felt locked in. It doesn't mean that I didn't have attraction or desire, but I also didn't necessarily think there were alternative options, you know. But I think in the healthiest of environments, and as, as I get older, I've, I've developed more, healthier relationships to my own body and to my partners. I think what informs my yes now is, one, the, the, the biggest thing, obviously, is their consent, right? An active yes. I find pleasure and desire and joy in getting a yes, not a passive consent like, well, she ain't saying stop. She ain't saying no. No, I actually want an active yes. And I find joy in that. I find pleasure in that. And that makes me want to proceed in a different way. But also just, is this a healthy encounter? You know, I, I guess the older I get, the more I ask different questions about the encounter. And is this a healthy relationship? Is this a healthy choice for me? And if it is, I proceed. And if not, I don't. But again, I'm not sure that boys are taught early on to consider whether this is a healthy choice or not. We're taught that our compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory hypersexuality, mean that you got to want women and you got to want them all as, as every chance you get. And I think that that's an unhealthy thing that, that we just have to unlearn. And then just to close, right now, consent doesn't matter in America. When you have a presidential candidate who is able to confess to sexually assaulting women on video and continues to run within that particular race and does what filmmaker Byron Hurt talks about in terms of masculinity, the deflection and denial of dismissing the seriousness of what he has done as locker room talk or boy talk, which is what his wife called it, then consent is not something that matters. And part of what I'm calling for through this emotional justice work is to say, what if we shifted from sex positive to consent positive? In other words, what would it look like to find pleasure in permission? to explore the joy of the continuous consent for every step of an encounter to be an exchange of pleasure between two people as opposed to the imposition and the dominance that so marks masculinity. A closing thought. I mean, the idea of moving to a consent-positive world, I think, is important. I think that sex is complex, though. I, I I I think that we have to create space where people can engage in forms of fantasy and forms of desire. So, for example, if someone has a partner with whom they have a very particular sexual dynamic and relationship and they have safe words and they have understandings, you know, they may not want a literal consent word every time they have sex. I mean, that, that's their business. That's their thing. I think the, the erotic and, 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 and the sexual can be complex and interesting and dynamic, and, and I don't want to foreclose on too many possibilities for how people want to engage in their own sexual ethics and practices in their own relationships that are healthy. Because I think that's part of a sex-positive world as well, right? But in addition to a sex-positive world, absolutely, I, I think this idea you're raising of a consent-positive world is, is, is not only powerful and extraordinary, it's necessary. I think we need a world where consent is not only normalized 
but popularized, where it's not only you know mandatory, but it's viewed as an asset to a healthy relationship, where there is not only no doubt that the person is consenting, but that we find pride in, in consent, right? I mean, to me, I would rather our identities hover around, you know, being proud that people consent, not being proud of just of how much sex we've had as men or how many bodies we've conquered, right, which is sort of the narrative, but to actually think about consent in a healthy way and to go deeper to your point, Esther, which is what informs the consent? Because if, if what informs the consent is a type of outside social pressure or a sense of obligation or a sense of inadequacy or a sense of fear, then it's really not consent. And so we have to, again, get beyond the kind of literal, almost juridical or legal understandings of consent, which is, well, technically she said yes, right? Or technically he said yes, and move to a world where we understand the nuances of consent and the layers of consent so that we don't have a technical yes, but a spiritual and emotional, cultural and social no, which is what erodes our spirits, tears down our psyches, and ultimately serves as an act of violence against women and girls especially, but really everybody. And that's the last thing I'd say here is that we also need to think about this, not just within the context of male-female, boy-girl, heteronormative relationships, but also in the context of same-gender-loving relationships. At Morehouse, I had a student spend days sitting in front of the library, sitting on a mattress where he was sexually assaulted by a fellow student, according to him. And I need that to be part of the conversation as well. But there's so much, because masculinity is such an unhealthy construct, it's not just about hypersexuality and violence, but also about compulsory heterosexuality. There's almost no space for that boy to talk. Morehouse, or whatever institution, because it's not Morehouse in particular, but any institution is willing to talk about sexual violence. They'd much rather talk about a sexual violence against a woman or a girl student than they are another male student. There's no language or vocabulary for that that we're willing to embrace. So we need to kind of stretch our understanding and our vocabulary to account for that. And we also have to not normalize this within spaces that we think are undesirable. So, for example, even a PG movie in the United States will have a joke about not dropping, or you could watch a, a, a Medea movie and somebody will make a joke about not dropping the soap in prison, right? A PG movie, a PG, that's a rape joke because it's a prison context and because it's it's same gender, it gets normalized. So we, it's just a joke. You go to prison, watch out what they're going to do to you. And it's just a joke, right? But we're actually making jokes about people being raped in prison. And, you know, you're going to get a girlfriend in prison. That's a, that's a form of uh, aggressive coercion. That's a form of rape. That's, that's sexual assault. That's sexual violence. It's all of those things. We need a language. We need a vocabulary. And we need to kind of expand our ethical uh, imaginations as well to understand what's possible here so that we can get to a consent positive world as well as a sex positive world and really unlearn all these awful, negative, dangerous, violent behaviors that have put us where we are right now. I'm Mark Lamont Hill and you're listening to the Consent Convo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. Thank you, Mark Lamont Hill. The Consent Convo is an emotional justice project. It's a public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. And we are having it with men and women. It's a call to create a consent-positive environment alongside a sex-positive environment to stand up and speak out. Come to everyone About the time that we're so 
yourself. Tune in next time. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes and check out ebony.com every Thursday for The Consent Combo, a public conversation campaign on consent. I'm your host, Esther Armar. <laughs> We're about to jump, y'all. I got moxie, I'm so damn foxy Industry try to block me like cops and paparazzi Zones that don't copy, just copy properly Everybody say policy universal